I have a hard time defining leadership, but I know it when I see it. We all know it when we see it, right? Because we find people that we say, I will follow that person. And some of those people you'll say, I'll follow that person off the edge of the cliff. Hi, I'm Nil Spinya, and you're listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast, a show dedicated to demystifying leadership development one conversation at a time. Each week, I sit down with leaders in the B2B space to discuss their journey and what they've learned along the way. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous, and the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard, you just need a guide and the right set of tools. So head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be. Welcome to another episode of the B2B Leadership Podcast. My name is Nils Vinya, and today I am joined by my incredible guest, Mr. Dan Steinman. Dan, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Nils. I've been looking forward to this because, as you know, I do a lot of these and they're always about customer success. And I love customer success, but it's so cool to actually talk about something else once in a while. So <laughs> I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Me too. I mean, I, I'm right there with you. I love customer success, but I love leadership an awful lot too. And it is great to talk with an incredible leader in the customer success space who has at times been called the godfather of customer success. And we're talking about leadership today. It is true. I've been called that. I always cringe when, when you say it, but then I always say, well, okay, call me godfather. Just don't call me grandfather because customer success isn't old enough yet to have a grandfather. So, Fair enough. Fair enough. It, indeed, it is not. But I was uh, before we got on, you know, I was thinking back to the very first time we actually met in person was in 2013 at the very first customer success conference that ever existed put on by Gainsight, the company you were working for, Pulse, right? And, and how many people were we at that early stage in San Francisco? Yeah, I think we, we say that we had around 400. It might have been a little less than that. But the funny thing about the 400 was nobody, almost nobody knew what customer success was unless you worked at Salesforce. So we got 400 people in a room. And the way we did it was every single person in the room, almost without exception, was either a personal friend of mine or Nick Meta's or Anthony Kennedy's. And so we called in every favor we could, come and fill the room. And they all said, well, what's customer success? And we said, well, maybe you'll figure that out at the conference. And uh, we had a blast. It turned out to be one of the best things we ever did as a company was to do Pulse. So, so that's a really fond memory, March no, May, probably May of 2013, kicking off uh, Pulse for the first time. Now we're going to, this year or next year, we'll do number 10, I think. So amazing. And going from a few hundred people to tens of thousands of people was the total opposite. And it was a blast for me too. I was a CSM at the time, an individual contributor. And here I go to this conference where it's all it's supposed to be all about this profession. I was eyes wide open, having a blast, got to meet you in person for the first time. And I was like, whoa, 
this is a whole different world than I was involved with before. Wow, you've known me for nine years and you still and you still consider me a friend. That's that's a record, I think, for me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> hey, I'm I am truly honored and I love our catches. Were you at Contagent at the time? Yes, yes. And we were one of your first clients. You sold our deal to Andy. You were right? one of the first ten one yep. of our first ten customers. So before well, we signed paper, uh Jay Barra paper before it was even Gainsight. I think there <laughs> I think there was only eleven companies that signed when it was still Jay Barra. And you sold all of them. And I think I, think. I sold all of them. That was just <laughs> calling people who I knew were doing a job that I knew how to do and say, hey, I think I have a way to make it easier for you. There you go. Plus the price tag was like really, really, yeah. really small. Yeah. Uh, back then, we won't tell anybody what kind of a deal we all got, but uh, it was quite a deal back then. <laughs> Hey, and, and those are always fun, fun times looking back at the scrappy stuff you had to do, the, you know, what you had to pull off in order to get a few hundred people into a conference in San Francisco and look at what it's become. It's amazing. Worldwide phenomenon. So what you're still working, doing some work with Gainsight today. What exactly is your role and where are you focused on? Yeah. After eight full years, when I came back from running our European operation, which was a year and a half ago now. I decided it was time to go a little slower. So I went down to one day a week and I went back to a job and a title that I used to have at Gainsight. We call it chief evangelist, which basically means anytime I can find a group of more than one person to whom I can talk about customer success, then I'm doing my job, whether it's official Gainsight duties or just mentoring people, you know, young people in the industry. This is part, as you know, Nils, this is one of the real positive aspects of growing Gainsight as a startup was just finding people to talk shop with. We weren't always trying to sell our software. We just wanted to engage people in a conversation about customer success. So so I'm officially one day a week doing the chief evangelist role at Gainsight. And then I'm fortunate to have been able to kind of choose a few advisory roles where I either get to coach companies on being a startup, which I love. I've done eight of them myself and or talking about customer success. So uh, as a friend of mine said, retirement is not stopping work. Retirement is getting to choose who you want to work with. And I'm kind of the living embodiment of that. So I'm really, really fortunate that I get to choose a few friends and companies I really like to advise and try to help them build up from scratch or or help them te- teach them the ropes on how to do customer success. Those companies are absolutely lucky to have you, your expertise, your background. I mean, it would be a, an incredible gift to have you as part of their team. So thanks. Wonderful. I appreciate you saying that. Absolutely. All right. So now we've talked a little bit about what's going on today and a little bit about Gainsight and some of the run you've had there. We'll come back to that. But I want to go way back to the beginning. I want to go back to the beginning where Dan Steinman was an individual contributor, you know, out of school, working in whatever industry you were working in. And then you got this promotion into a leadership position where you are now responsible for other people. Tell me a little bit about how that transition worked and what were you doing? Yeah, I never told you this, Nils, but I never was an individual contributor. I came right out of college into a senior manager. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I was going to say, wait, this is a story we have to dig into. I need to hear more about this. That is so not true. So not true. Yeah, but the first 10 years of my career were at IBM, which- That's right. And and every single uh, day of that was as an individual contributor. I never uh, vaulted into a management position while I was there. But what's cool about IBM as an institution, they really train their managers. They understand that the entire 400,000 person company 
runs well only if first line management does a great job, right? And you know this too. There's there's nothing more important to the individual contributors than who their manager is and how that manager leads. So I learned a lot as kind of just watching how IBM leadership did their jobs. My second job then was with a company called Silicon Graphics back in the not early days of Silicon Valley, but it was back in the early 90s. Uh, Silicon Graphics no longer exists, but our fame was uh, we built uh, we built hardware and software capabilities for doing animations and what is now so common in all movies, con- you know, computer generated stuff. Mm-hmm. In fact, our claim to fame, as espoused by our CEO, for all the great things you've ever done, he said once to all the employees, for all the great things that our software and hardware have ever done, you will always be known as the people who worked at the company that made the dinosaurs move because <laughs> Silicon graphics, hardware and software was used to do Jurassic park. I yeah. remember that. Yep. So, that's perfect. And yeah. That was so the blockbuster of the time that it was really was. A big, yeah. Big deal. yeah. Yeah. And, and animating those dinosaurs was a huge, huge deal. Now you can do it on a PC with a card on it. At that time you had to buy a $30,000 workstation for 27 engineers at Pixar or what used to be called industrial light and magic to do it anyway. So that, that was my second job. And during that, during that course of that six year path in my career at Silicon graphics, uh, I ended up in a job working in marketing of all things and got promoted to manager. So that was the first time I ever actually had responsibility for managing another employee or employees and that was kind of a shock to my system, as it is to most people when that happens, because that wasn't really well planned out. I know you're just going to nod your head through this whole story, Nils, because <laughs> this is the way it happens most of the time. It's accidental, right? I wasn't planning on it. I wasn't begging for it. I hadn't read all the books. I hadn't done any training. My director just came to me one day and he said, hey, we've got, I've got five people reporting to me. I'd like to change that and have some of them report to you. And I said, um, okay. And I didn't ask any questions because I just didn't want to feel stupid. Did I know how to do it? Absolutely not. I'd watched people do it, which means I'd seen some people do it well and some people not do it very well. And I just kind of entered into it pretty naively, but with one primary thought in mind, and that is my whole job isn't managing people, but it's the most important part of my job. So I, I had to prioritize it and pay attention to it and take it seriously. So as opposed to just now being an individual contributor who once in a while has to do a performance review, I looked at it pretty seriously and said, how do I manage people effectively? Who can I learn from? When do I lean on my boss for help, assuming that he's done it before, which of course he had. So, uh, but (laughs) it's, I find it's such a common story. We thrust people into leadership or management positions without helping them to be ready for it. And then we put them in there and we don't help them do it. We just say, go be a manager and whatever I tell you to do, whatever projects I tell you to prioritize, go do that. And then we'll do performance reviews once in a while. And if you feel like you need to fire somebody, you know, come and talk to me or whatever. It's like, it's very haphazard, right? It's, it's really sad. The most important job in every company is first line management. And yet we often don't train our people to do that very well. And and what's fascinating is that Silicon Graphics at the time was a pretty large organization. Six thousand right? people. 
6,000 people. Yeah. So, I mean, you had the experience of IBM. Thankfully, they did a lot of things right and had training, and that's awesome. You didn't get to partake in the training, but you had observed and had experienced it. And then go into an organization of 6,000 people, and it and it's a accidental, hey, I need some people to report to you, and then not a lot of other support. So what were some of the things that you had the right mindset, right? The It was not the only part of your job, but it was the most important. So that mindset took care of an awful lot. But how did you actually successfully navigate the waters that you were getting into, which you had never been in before? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say that I don't think I did it all that well. And that cannot be a surprise, right? I hadn't done it. I'd been in, I'd been in business by that time for 12 years, maybe. And I had never done it. And I got thrust into it. And I assumed that my boss assumed that I knew how to do it. And I didn't want to let the cat out of the bag that I really didn't. I think I kind of stumbled and bumbled and asked for a lot of forgiveness from the people who worked for me. I think we made it work. I can't actually say for sure why, except that I was lucky enough to have done a big part of the job of the people that were working for me. Now that can be both a curse and a blessing because you always assume in that situation that the way I did it was the right way to do it. Otherwise I wouldn't suddenly be the boss, but that can be a real curse because that's not always true. There are, are always better ways to do things, but I, I managed the people under the assumption that the way I had done it was at least acceptable and beyond acceptable, or I wouldn't have gotten promoted into the management position. And I guess that kind of worked out, but it was again, more accidental than it was intentional. Cause I never even interacted with what we called HR at the time. We still call HR, but I didn't even know who they were. All I knew was there was somebody with that title who occasionally would send me resumes and put the diverse, the diverse resumes on the top of the list saying, hey, we should probably look at these top five more closely than we do at the other ones. That was HR's way of kind of creating a diversity angle on hiring. But otherwise, I got... I got no help. No one came to my meetings and coached me on how to do one-on-ones or how to do team meetings or anything like that. It was it was totally kind of um, a blind man groping in the dark to try to figure out how to do it. It's fascinating. And regardless of if you're at a company that has 6,000 people or a startup that has 10 people, like the same story still could be told, like literally almost identical story to what you just told. Same thing is haphazard. It's not timed. And then we oftentimes don't have the support. So I'm curious in all the startups and large organizations you've been in, what do you think is at the root of our inability to successfully prepare to uh, train to coach to provide the guidance and expertise to this critical role of you know frontline managers for sure, and then essentially as you escalate up the chain as well. Yeah, I think ultimately, as with almost everything in business, it comes down to prioritization. Like my first management job is a pretty good example. It was a director who had too many direct reports and wanted to offload some of those, and then kind of went like this. Okay. Now I don't. I know there's four more people that aren't reporting to me anymore. I don't have to worry about that because Dan will take care of it. And he was a really good guy, and he was a good manager. So I got good kind of examples from him. But he never sat down with me and said, "Have you done this before? Have you ever coached somebody? Have you ever given constructive criticism? Have you ever had effective one-on-ones?" None of that happened. So, and I think it's because, for the most part. 
it's a little bit out of sight, out of mind. I, I'm going to promote someone. I'm going to give them the management job so I don't have to worry about that anymore. And that's really the wrong attitude. I'm going to give someone their first management job, and then I got to spend more time with them to make sure they're successful in that role. And then and only then, when I trust them and I know that they're on the right track, can I take my hands off the wheel a little bit. It's like, it's like teaching your kids how to drive. You don't get in the back seat and fall asleep. You sit on the edge of your seat wishing you had a brake pedal, right? And, <laughs> that's right. And that's how it should be when someone's doing their first management job because there's, there's a million more ways to screw it up than there are to do it right. And so our assumption that it's going to get done right when we do that is, is such a bad assumption. And I think it's one of the reasons companies don't do as well as they can because they thrust people into management uh, because they did their job well, which is, by the way, another wrong criteria for selecting managers. Because often when you do that, you take your best person, your, your most valuable individual contributor, and you turn them into a bad manager. So you lose your best individual contributor and you end up with a bad manager out of it. What could be worse than that? That's just the worst possible scenario. So, And too often, we don't carve out good enough career paths for people to stay individual contributors. So they think to get ahead, they got to go into leadership. And that's a whole different topic. But that was kind of the way that it worked back then when I was doing it. And, and I look back and I go, I was so ill-prepared and no one helped me. I kind of did it all on my own. I learned learned by mistakes. I learned by doing some things right. I learned by reading some books. And then I was always observing. I was trying to watch other people because here's one of the things I've learned, Nils, I'm sure you feel the same way. You may remember once upon a time in the in Congress, in the US Congress, they were debating a bill on pornography. And the congressman stood up on the floor and he said, I don't know how to define pornography, but I know it when I see it. And that's kind of what I, that's one of the learning processes for me. I have a hard time defining leadership, but I know it when I see it. We all know it when we see it, right? Because we find people that we say, I will follow that person. And some of those people you'll say, I'll follow that person off the edge of the cliff because I believe in them. They've rallied me. They've inspired me. I'm walking behind them. We're going, we're going into battle together. And so I, I thought I became pretty good at observing what I thought was pretty good leadership and then trying to model some of that. But I learned it all on my own, sadly, because I probably could have done it 10 times faster with some really good mentoring. That's the difference, right? There's somebody out in the world has already solved the problem, whatever problem it is you're going through, whether you're first time manager, director, VP, going to the C level, doesn't matter, starting a company, somebody else has already solved that problem. But if we can get access to that individual or that program or whatever that teaches tools about how to do the thing they learned how to do really hard in a much more efficient, effective way, we can make a massive difference. Over time, I became a student of leadership because it became a really fascinating subject to me. Like, what is it that makes a leader? And we often think that it's personality or that it's built into your DNA. By the way, those who have never done it think the same thing about sales. There's a certain personality, and if it's not built into your DNA, you can't do it. And that is so wrong. Sales does not require a certain personality it requires the same thing that every other job requires, which is diligence, understanding, intelligence, hard work, and an eye on the results, right? And leadership is the same way. And so we can't just say, oh, well, I don't have that personality or I'm not this outgoing, charismatic person. 
for me personally, I'm one of the most introverted persons that I know on the scale. And I've taken the, I've taken the test several times. I'm way over on the introvert side. That doesn't mean you can't be a good manager. Uh, it may look easier if you're really outgoing and charismatic, but that doesn't mean you can't be a good manager just because you're an introvert. In some ways, it makes you a better manager because you have to rely on attention to detail and real understanding of people as opposed to just inspiring them because you're a charismatic, funny, fun guy to be around, right? So I think that actually plays out, played to my advantage because I knew I had to be a student of it. Absolutely. And that's really interesting on the introverted side. I would not have guessed that based on your assessment results, given the fact that one, just our relationship, how we've gotten to know each other over many years, but also the fact that you've held the evangelist title for a number of years. You've also opened an office in other countries. You've spread the word of CS across the globe. And most people, just like you were saying, don't think that you can really do that unless you have a gigantic megaphone and a huge mouth and love to talk about yourself, right? That sounds like it's actually kind of the opposite. So I see in the same parallels here with the, the leadership side and the, the being an introvert that it's just, it's about discipline. It's about execution. It's about results. It's about being having tools to go through these processes. Yeah. I think there's, there's actually some of somewhat of an advantage to being an introvert. People often misunderstand extrovert, introvert. They think extroverts love people. Introverts hate people. That's not right. Introverts probably like people as well. I know I certainly do. The difference is extroverts get their uh, energy from other people. Introverts have energy sucked out of them by other people, especially crowds. And I always use this example for me. You know my CEO, Nick, uh, reasonably well. Nick is a classic extrovert, like really extroverted. And here's, here's a true statement. If Nick and I went to the same party. Let's say there's 200 people at the party. We don't know. Neither one of us know any of them. So our job when we go in there is to engage as many of them as possible and get in some kind of word about Gainsight, right? That's kind of the job. We'll both go in and do that. We'll meet the same number of people. We'll have those conversations. At the end of that evening, Nick will not be able to go to sleep because he will just be buzzing from all of the energy of those people. I will fall asleep 10 seconds into the Uber ride on my way back to the hotel because I'm just exhausted because my desire when I go into one of those kinds of situations is please help me just to find one person that's really interesting so I can spend the whole night just talking to that one person because I love doing that. And as a manager, that's the most important thing you do is not the inspirational talks to your team, but the one-on-one conversations with each of your team members. So that introvert thing kind of plays in because I really do want to get to know people. I don't want to just know them on the surface and have them say, I'll follow you wherever you go. I want to actually know who they are, what makes them tick, what is it that actually motivates them, what rewards them. Because as a manager, these are the important things, like what motivates somebody. It's not always money. Sometimes it's pat on the back. Sometimes it's public acclamation. There's a million different ways that people get motivated and rewarded. And you don't figure that out unless you sit down and have one-on-one conversations with them. You can't just come rah-rah to a team meeting and expect to know what makes people tick because it's not the same for all of them. So so anyway, I think uh, that introvert thing kind of plays into, into your favor with a willingness to act like an extrovert, like I stand up in front of large groups of people and, and, and talk about customer success 
and talk about doing startups because I love that. And that's, that's fine. I, I, I love doing that. It's just that uh, it drains me as opposed to giving me energy. It kind of drains me. So I love that we're talking about things you and I haven't chatted about before because I'm, I, to a T, you just described me too. Like, I'm in that, oh, 100%. I love the excitement of speaking at Pulse, being in front of a room, being on in a presentation, whether it's online or physical or whatever it is. Like, that is fun for me. Like, hands down, no doubt. I love doing that. However, it drains all my energy. Like I'm, I can barely last at Pulse for three days. Like I usually go home and almost get sick because I've expended too much and I don't really want to go to the party at night afterwards. I would much rather have a meaningful conversation with one person that was really interesting like that. I want to go deep. That's- well, multiply that, multiply that by 10 and you know how I feel, Nils, yeah. because I don't have the option of disappearing during right. Pulse. And I can't take more than three steps without someone saying, hey, Dan, let's catch up. Or you work at Gainsight, right? Or did you know that we're a customer and we're really struggling with XYZ or whatever it might be? Like it's a family reunion times 10, right? And and so you can only imagine how I feel after four days of Pulse. I'm like, I am so ready to be alone. Like lock me up and put me in solitary confinement for three weeks. I'll be fine with that. <laughs> Um, but you know, we, we choose our jobs, right. And it's funny that both you and I are introverts. And if you had asked you, if you thought I was an introvert or expert, you would have said extrovert. And I would have said the same thing about you. Right. And, and here we are sitting in plain sight, actually. Yeah. Same, and same talking side. about leadership, talking yeah. about our experience as leaders. So I think this is hopefully for some people out there who know they're introverts and think that leadership isn't the right path for them. I say, go do it. Cause you could be really great at it. And introversion in that case might be a strength as opposed to a weakness. hundred percent. And and one thing you said there was really interesting was around if I could have a deep conversation with somebody who's really interesting, right? Understanding what motivates people, how they tick, where they get satisfaction from, where they get energy from, right? That requires a genuine curiosity. You embody that hundred percent. I do as well. You know, has that been something that's been with you, like a character trait you've always been curious about other people? Or is that something that you developed as a result of having to get to know the teams and, and people that worked for you to figure out how are we going to get to the next place if I can't understand where you are today? Yeah, I think it's it's more learned than it is kind of inherent in me anyway, because I, I think I learned that that's what makes me thrive is getting to know people at more than just the surface level. Like my nightmare is just having a hundred surface conversations. What do you do? Where do you work? When's your IPO going to happen, right? You go into a room with a hundred people in Silicon Valley and everyone's working at the hottest company in the history of the world and they're all going to IPO and the conversations are monotonously the same over and over and over again. And that's why I really thrive on finding somebody where I can go down at least the next level, if not more. And so I think I've learned over time that that, is what's good for me. And it's also what's good for the other person. Like most other people, their favorite topic is them, right? So if you can show some curiosity about someone else, they'll be more than happy to share who they are and what makes them tick. And in the long run, that's how you build relationships. People think that you actually know them. You just don't know who they are, but you actually know them. So that curiosity, which by the way, is an important trait in almost every job that you'll ever do. Curiosity about other people, if you're a CSM, for example, 
curiosity about your customer's actual business, what works, what doesn't work, uh, how are they going to get promoted, right? Because making somebody a hero is the art of doing customer success. So curiosity, I think, became a learned trait for me, knowing that that was uh, something that was going to make me better at my job, either as a manager or as an individual contributor. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. The B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. Head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you've always wanted to be. Now let's get back to the interview. That is uh, just so right on. Um, and it, it's so simple, yet complex at the same time. Well, wait a second. If everybody's number one topic they want to talk about is themselves, how do you actually put that on the side and have a deep conversation with somebody else where you're not the source, yeah, you're not the subject? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? There absolutely is a lot of learning and a lot of experience that goes with that. Like you were saying, you know, in some cases, you know, I've felt the urge to want to share more than I probably should have. And in other cases, that my whatever I'm dealing with goes on the side and on the table and just that is for another day. I'm 100% focused on you. What is going on in your world? Those have actually been some of my most fun conversations ever is my purpose in going, large part in going to Pulse is to sit down and have one-on-one conversations with people. I usually sit out in the main room area and people will come by and be like, oh, Nils, hey, how you doing? I'm like, hey, how's it going? Come sit down here. Yeah, and we yeah. have a 30-minute chat. Yeah. Now, I don't have a million people following me like you do. But going deep, and that is just so incredibly impactful because one conversation with somebody, whether they report directly to you or they're a peer or they're inside, outside your company, doesn't matter. But one conversation where you truly feel like someone else is genuinely interested and invested in learning about you can change the game entirely. Like you walk away from that feeling like you've been heard and that doesn't happen very often. That's right. I, I think this is a real leadership tip and that is as a leader, maybe the most important quality is humility because let's say you're managing nine people. You got to do a lot of one-on-ones. You got to do a lot of coaching. You got to do a lot of helping. It's like having kids. You get to set yourself aside for 18 years to put someone else first. And that's what you have to do as a leader. You have to put your people first and be willing to live on how well they do, not on how well you do, but on how well they do. And as I look back at my 30-year career, the things that are highlights for me are the people that worked for me that did great things. Like my, my resume, if I could just write a brand new resume, would say things like, I hired Elaine Cleary. I hired Paul Piazza. I hired Denise Tukowski. Ruben Rabago as well? Absolutely, right? Those kinds of people who went and did awesome things and built their careers beyond whatever I could have helped them do, but I helped them get started. That thrills me, number one. And number two, that happened because I set myself aside to try to help them and put them in the best position to succeed. And by the way, it's one of the, if you were asking Nick, who is my boss, what is Dan good at? What's his biggest contribution to Gainsight? He would say things like uh, the people that he hired and managed and let grow 
into roles that were bigger than him. I always say my the best thing I ever do is hire people smarter than me and then get the heck out of their way. It's so much like having kids. Like the proudest thing um, you can ever have for your kids is their success. And you don't have any desire to be better than them. You want them to be way better than you. And that's what gives you pride. And that has to be the same attitude when you're managing. You're not managing people to build yourself up. You're managing people to build them up. And if you do that, guess what happens to you? You get pushed up as well, right? Yep. That's, that's phenomenal advice. And so much of this, like we haven't even talked tactics at all about how to do this, but the number one thing you got to get right is everything you're saying, which is the psychology of being a leader. It's not about you. It's about them. And if they are successful, then you will be successful. And it's great that there are actually so many parallels between the world of customer success and leadership because it is about other people, right? Much like we say with our clients, but with our team as well. And if you're in a customer success leadership role, you get all of that. It's about the customer, but it's also about your people and you get it on both sides. (laughs) Yeah. And this is an obvious point, Nils, but leadership and management are not the same thing. Some of the best leaders I've ever known have never managed anybody. They just lead by example. They lead by work ethic. They lead because they are so passionate about things, right? And in customer world of customer success, you're often leading your customers. They don't work for you. And so you're not managing them, but you can still provide leadership. And then when you get into executive level positions, you know it's pretty easy to get people who work for you to do what you want them to do. But effective leadership in a senior level position is influence management, where you're getting people to follow you that don't work for you and are not incented to do the things that you want them to do necessarily, right? But that's the only way when you're a when you're at a level where you're reporting to the CEO, everyone's a big shot, everyone's a senior executive, but yet you have to influence other parts of the organization because your job as a manager is to make the people who work for you's job easier. And the only way to do that is to go influence, right? If I'm running customer success, I make my people's job easier by getting sales to do their job better and by getting product to do their job better and getting my CEO to do his job better, et cetera, right? So I think it's critical to understand that management and leadership are not the same thing. And you can be a really effective leader without necessarily managing people. And at some point, you have to lead people who don't work for you. Uh, otherwise, you will not be effective as a senior leader. Phenomenal point. So I want to touch on that senior leadership piece a little bit because you were a VP of customer success at Marketo before joining Gainsight. And you were probably one of the first, if not the first person with that title, period, ever in existence. So what changed from your leadership perspective going into that role, which now was an undefined thing, like customer success did not exist. Like this was pre-Gainsight, this was pre the world even knowing anything about it. And and you had an executive level title to run this department and Marketo had some challenges that you were brought in to solve. Um, What changed from a leadership perspective for you to enable you to be successful in at that level in Marketo? Yeah, it's a great question, Nils. It's it's so interesting to think back. I, one of my regrets, I don't have a lot of regrets, but one of my regrets was the first time I had that title, I wish I would have gone to LinkedIn to search that title to see how many people in the world had that title. I think the number was probably less than 10. So that was really interesting because there weren't a lot of other people to lean on. But one of the first things I did 
when I took that job at Marketo was I used my network to go find seven or eight other people who were doing a job either by that title or something similar. And, and I got like, I think seven or eight people and we just started getting together once a quarter to share stories. Like, what do you struggle with? And what is your CEO being unrealistic about? And what are your NPS scores? And what's your churn rate? And just this real honest conversation. I, I always recommend this to anyone in any job. Find two or three peers that don't work at your company and have coffee with them once a month and just bounce ideas and, and get a different perspective on that job. It's especially important at, at a higher level because that's the only place you can go to find peers is outside of your company at some point, right? So the leadership was was driven by, which ultimately it always will be, is going to be driven by results. So at Marketo, the results required were really clear because the reason I was hired there was because our churn rate was too high. We had IPO in our sites. It was three and a half years away, but we had it in our sites already because we were on that growth path. And the CEO hired me. He said, we can't go public with this churn rate. Can you do anything about that? That's what I want to hire you for. And I said, I, th I think so. Usually there's low-hanging fruit. That's the good news. If you have a high churn rate, there's some pretty low-hanging fruit, like customers who signed a one-year contract and no one called them until the 10th month of that contract. That's pretty low-hanging fruit, right? So yeah. give me a few resources we can prioritize based on a little bit of their behavior, and then we can go interact with them. And all we were trying to do was get ahead of the churn curve. So if a customer was on a path to churn in the 11th month of a contract, there's no hope. So don't spend any time with them because it's wasted time. Try to find those customers in the second or third month, right? The whole concept of customer success became this early warning thing. Can we get ahead of churn by finding those customers who are struggling early on? So that was, the, that was my kind of leadership directive was let's go fix the churn problem. And so when I hired people, I found I had to do two things. One, I had to give them some tools to do that job, to go get ahead of the churn monkey, uh, the churn gorilla or whatever you might want to call it. And then the other thing I've had to do in that role and many others is buffer my team from the winds from above. Because CEOs have lots of ideas and some of them are actually good ideas and a whole bunch of them are not. And some CEOs are really sane people and some are not so much. And so one of the things you have to do is take on the leadership of your team. And, and one of the ways you do that is by keeping them from getting buffeted by other things that are going on in the company. Because you don't want to lose focus, right? Stay focused on this. And I'll take all the heat from above so that we can just keep doing our job. And my job is to make your job easier. And just keep telling them that over and over and over again. So that was a, a lesson for me because I hadn't really had to do that very much previously, but that was really important in that particular role. And then the other thing was customer success was kind of unique at the time because most people didn't know what it meant. So I spent a lot of time internally trying to help everyone in the company understand what our job was. We were not the support organization. We were not premium support. We were a completely different organization with a 180 degree turn of focus where we wanted to be proactive with customers while, uh, while support was being reactive. And at that time, which is now 12 years ago, 
customer success sounded a lot like customer support. And that was the only pattern match that most people had in their minds was, oh, it's it's just a rebranding of customer support. Uh, it's a new name for customer support, or it's the higher tier of customer support or something like that. So really on behalf of your team, defining what it is and what it isn't so that they could be judged fairly. And then setting, as is always the case with leadership, setting clear goals and then trying to make it easier for the team to reach those goals. And if you do those things and stay focused on those things, you're typically in a pretty good spot, uh, assuming that it's possible to reach those goals. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Well, you touched on there, that sounds an awful lot like what you were describing, the evangelism role that you've played with Gainside and the industry of customer success as a whole for, for a long time. But that was even pre that. And I think there's a really important takeaway here for anybody in any leadership position is that there is always an evangelism aspect to your work. Simply, one of my favorite sayings that that I tell my clients and, and groups all the time is simply doing the work as a leader is not enough because nobody else knows what you do. You know, this is especially true in the customer success case because it's new kid on the block. But in reality, we don't know what any other department, team, group really does. We might have a high level once a quarter, this is what we're working on. But in reality, we just don't know. And so if you don't know, all kinds of doubts and fears and uncertainties about you as a leader can creep in if you are not evangelizing the work of what your team does, the value you provide, just as you described there as a key element of your success in a very early field at Marketo. Yeah, we used to say this all the time. We probably still do as companies. Everybody who works for a company is a salesperson. And what we're really saying is you represent the company. You could change that to say everyone's an evangelist because everyone isn't actually a salesperson. Most of us, no matter who we meet, we're not necessarily out there trying to sell our product, but we are trying to evangelize the fact that there's a better way of doing something and we have a better way. And in the case of, well, Salesforce went through this evangelizing CRM is something that every company needed. We did the same thing with customer success, but almost every company has an aspect of that, right? We, we are doing something either that no one's ever done before or we're doing it better than anyone's done it before. And that really is all evangelism is. So everybody in the company, my title is chief evangelist. The chief evangelist is really the CEO, of course, but it's not his only role. In my case, it's my only role, but everyone in the company is really an evangelist. And what what I've always been trying to do in that role is lead the community to be evangelists for customer success. Because it's a little bit like a religious analogy would be you can't have one pastor for all of the people in the world who believe a certain thing, right? Everybody that that pastor teaches has to become a pastor as well to use. It's kind of a crude analogy, but it's the same way for us, right? Whatever we're leading inside of our company, we can lead outside as well. And getting more and more people kind of bought into that idea advances our cause uh, as well as helping them to be better leaders for that cause in their inside their companies. And I think that's why it's so important that the work that you do, the company you work for, the role that you have, the alignment with you personally and professionally is so important. Because if you don't like your job, if you don't like your industry, if you don't like your company, guess what? You're not going to do any evangelizing. And then 
It just stunts your growth. It doesn't hurt the company. They got plenty of other evangelists out there. But if you're not in a position where you feel empowered and excited about the work you're doing or about the fact that you have a better way to do whatever solution it is you offer, then you're just, frankly, wasting time. Find something that is drives you and that you are going to be excited to talk to other people about. And you can make a drastic difference very, very quickly. It's so true, Nils. And it's kind of another leadership tip is no matter how you're feeling as a leader, you have to be positive and optimistic and looking forward all the time. You can never stand up in front of your team and say, man, we're getting crushed. The, co the com competition is better than we are, blah, 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 right? And all good CEOs know this, right? They never have a moment in front of their company where they're anything but positive and looking forward. And sometimes we know it's not completely true, but you cannot live with a leader who isn't that way? You have to put on your optimistic hat, paint the best possible picture. Otherwise, no one's going to follow you. You could be a leader of nobody pretty quickly. You know, if, if you don't, <laughs> that has happened. You have it's to happened. you have to try to inspire people. You have to, even in the tough times, right? And the, the best leaders probably show through better during tough times than they do in the good times. Everyone, everyone's a rah rah leader. You know, when you're slack and you just went from 1 million to 10 million ARR in the last 12 months, everyone's, everyone's positive about that. But there's grinding times at every company and your best leaders inspire people even during the grinding times. 100%. And it's okay also to, even though you're not showing that to your team, but to feel that. On the, on the flip side, it's just something, not something that you bring into the sphere of the work that you do with the team because they're looking always to you for guidance, whatever role or level you're in. But it's completely okay to feel like I have, I'm, we're getting crushed. <laughs> the competition's really kicking us. But it, that is something that you work with a coach through. That is something you work with a peer outside, just like you were saying. That's something where you can have a private outlet to release some of that pressure and steam and know that you're not alone. Yeah. Everybody else is facing I was going to say that same thing. This is why you need peers so you yeah. can kind of let your guard down with somebody. You can't take it all out on your wife or your husband, right? You can <laughs> right. share it with Please them, don't. Please but don't. it doesn't really help very much and no. it probably drags the whole family down. Yeah. But you better yeah. you better have some peers that you can be really honest with because we all, we all get imposter syndrome. Even when things are going well, we're still like, there's no way I'm the right person for this job. I'm not capable of doing this, right? But you can't say that to your team, but you better find somebody you can be honest with about it and get reassured and kind of get back on track mentally, right? Yeah, and, and get the tools. If you don't have the tools to solve the current problems you're facing, somebody else has them. You just got to go out and find them. Like, yeah. that's okay. Like it's you a, said, easy, that's an easy problem to solve. Here, here's a great executive coach. You should talk to them. Or here's a here's a training course or a leadership course or a development course that you should be taking because that'll help you get over that hump, right? Yeah. But the key is that the you, the individual, whatever role and leader level you're at, has to be the one to drive that decision. Nobody, no boss, no HR team, no company is ever going to serve you a silver platter that says, oh, I think you should go work with this executive coach. Here it is. It's all set up and taken care of. All you have to do is show up. Like, no, it's not going to happen. But if you know that it would benefit you because you can show up in a different way, you can support your team in a different way, you can add more value to the organization, you can go out and find that and then bring that to the organization. They can help you 100%, but you have to drive that initiative first. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, you, you, if someone else has done it and said, hey, you should try this, awesome. But most of the time, you're going to have to do it yourself and then 
you drive it into other people. That's right. 100%. Okay. So there's a great question that you asked me uh, prior in our email exchange. I can't take credit for this question, but I want to ask you, what movie do you like most for leadership examples and techniques? Well, there's a, there's a lot of movie movies with leadership, but most of the leadership is I can kill more people than you do. That's That's called leadership in a lot of movies. But there's one that really struck me. One of my favorite movies is a movie called Apollo 13, which probably everyone has seen. It's about Apollo 13 mission to the moon where something went wrong shortly into the mission and they had to pull all sorts of miracles just to get the astronauts back safely. If you watch that movie again, the guy who's the flight director, in real life, his name is Gene Kranz. He's played by Ed Harris in that movie. And there's a number of situations in that movie that the emotions are really high. Like he's pulled all of his engineers together and they're worried that the three astronauts are going to just go off into space, right? Trying to figure out. And so the emotions are really high. There's a bunch of different people trying to cover themselves saying, this isn't our fault. We, you know, we don't know if the engine will work after what's, what's happened, et cetera. So a lot of people defending their own positions and whatever. And at least in the movie, Gene Kranz is this really calm voice. At one point, I remember he says, I don't want to hear anyone's opinion. I want facts. Facts are the only thing that matters. And if we have facts, then I can make a decision, right, about how we do this. And at one point, this scene is in my mind. He's, uh, this is an old school movie because it happened way long ago. And he has an overhead projector, you know, with the, the flimsy see-through slides on it. And he turns it on and the bulb goes out right away, which has happened to many of us that are old enough. Instead of kicking it over and starting to scream and yell, he just unplugs it and, and, and rolls it off to the side and keeps talking in this very calm, very focused, looking forward voice and being optimistic. You know, this is his famous line is, we've never lost an astronaut in space and we're sure as hell not going to lose one on my watch. Failure is not an option. And that line was only meaningful because of the way that he was leading. He didn't spend 20 minutes just screaming at everybody. He, he spent 20 minutes kind of coolly and calmly assessing the situation, looking for options, and then feeling like he had to inspire people to go above and beyond because this was going to be a week or two weeks where nobody sleeps. That's just the way it is. And we end up in those situations in the business world. And so if you watch that movie again, you'll see over and over Gene Kranz taking this position of uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in, in the lead. This is a prime time, high pressure situation. People's lives are at stake, as is all of our reputations. But we're going to work through this in a logical way. At one point even says, I don't want you to just look at what's on the ship. I want you to find the engineer who had designed it, and the person on the manufacturing floor that manufactured it. We need to know every single thing about every single piece of equipment that's on that spaceship right now. And that there's a time for that kind of leadership. Like We need to dig in and go as deep as possible. And I, I, I always was inspired by that movie because of the pressure that was on this guy and the way that he handled it without ever kind of losing his cool. It was really, really cool. And then one other one other line that was great. The at one point, uh, somebody from the White House came to him and said, "Hey, the president wants to know what are the chances 
uh, what are the chances of the astronaut surviving? He wanted him to give them a percentage, like it's 50-50 or 20-80 or whatever. And he said, we're not losing an astronaut on my watch, period. Well, the president wants a number. We're not losing an astronaut on my watch. That was his answer. And I was like, he was so convicted about it and he wasn't willing to give in even to the president of the United States. So it was inspiring. If you, if you ever, if you ever just want to watch a movie for the leadership part of it, that's one worth watching. That's the good, I mean, reflecting back here in those stories, I remember several of those key points. That was one powerful movie and it was all a true story. Like that was the best part was that actually did really happen. So Oh, amazing. Amazing. All right, Dan, um, as we wrap up here, just would love to leave with a, a parting piece of advice. Like we've talked a lot of, a lot of topics, first time manager, leading inside an organization, executive level, middle of the pack, whatever it is. We talked about a lot. What advice would you give to somebody listening in the audience that is the single most important thing you think they can do right now to build and develop their leadership skills? Yeah. I'm going to steal from, um, this, I think I've read a few leadership books, not like hundreds of them, but a few. But the first one I read is the one I always go back to. And it's an old book now, probably 30 years old. It's called Leadership is an Art. And it's written by a guy named Max Dupree. And in the book, he talks about something that he calls covenant leadership. And he says, a lot of people don't want to go where I'm about to go because the the word that's tied to the word covenant is the word love. So when you sit down, when you have a leadership position and you have people working for you, you need to approach that with an attitude of covenant, which is, I love these people. I want them so badly to be successful. I want to create a bond between them and I where I completely trust them and they completely trust me. And I think the basis of leadership is that idea. You and I, if I'm in a leadership position with you, whether we're peers or uh, you work for me or you're a subordinate in a different organization, we have to have a level of trust. Otherwise, there is no leadership capability at all, right? And so that's what that's what the, he, the point he was trying to make with that idea of covenant leadership is you have to figure out how to develop trust. And trust only comes through relationship. It doesn't come because you answered an email quickly when he sent it to you. That might build a little bit, but at some point you have to actually have a relationship. I have to know you. You said earlier, right? You want to, the other person wants to be heard. We have this deep human desire to be known by other people. And the only way to know somebody is to sit with them and listen to them and, and actually get to know them. And if you do that, then you can have a covenant relationship with them where they trust you and you trust them. And if somehow that trust is broken, there's an opportunity for for forgiveness. Whereas if your leadership position with somebody is, I'm, I'm a higher level than you, and I can tell you what to do, you can get away with that for a while. But if a mistake is made somewhere along the way, the trust is gone. Because the trust was built only on the fact that I can fire you, or I can make life really hard for you. And that goes well as long as every single decision and every single project goes perfectly. But you need to build a buffer, which is this covenant idea, where if I'm leading you and I make a mistake and that leads to you making a mistake, we still have to come back to a place where we can trust each other. And that's because we have that kind of relationship and that covenant. So I still highly recommend that book. 
Wow. Uh, and that's the lesson that I remember out of it. That's awesome. I'm not familiar with that book, but I will be very soon. Yeah, it's it's a small 100%. book. It's easy to it's easy to read. Hour and a half probably to read it, uh, but you'll want to read you'll want to read it more than once. Covenant leadership, I love it. Awesome. Well, Dan, it has been an absolute pleasure to spend some time with you today talking leadership, and thank you so much for your incredible wisdom and expertise and stories and examples and advice that you shared <laughs> with me and our audience. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm it was so much fun to talk about this, Nils. So. Uh, glad to do it. And if you ever want to do it again, we'll do it again. Oh, we'll definitely do a, a right. follow-up for sure. Yeah, Sounds let's great. put that on the calendar. All right, man. Awesome. Take care. Thanks so much. Thank Cheers. you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd welcome you to subscribe and give the show a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at b2bleadershippodcast.com. As always, I'm Nils Vinya, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Take care and have a great rest of your day. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous, and the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. So head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be.